0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 28. As we continue our series through the Psalms, But we have another great Psalm this morning. Psalm 28, verses one through nine. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Of David, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands, render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, or the works of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, our great rock and refuge. Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear from you and your word, knowing that we struggle, knowing that we are sinful and rebellion. We have no right to hear from you, for you to speak or commune with us, but we plead, Lord, on the blood of the covenant, on the shed blood of Christ to be heard, to be comforted, to be cared for. We plead that you would shepherd your people, your heritage, through your word this morning. or that you would comfort and draw near to the brokenhearted, to the despairing, because we live in a fallen world, but we do have hope in Christ. Show us Jesus this morning. Give us hope that lasts because it's grounded in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake, Amen. Has anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody? Yes. Look at all those hands. I love it. I love that we're at a church that likes old books. <laughs> we're not just obsessed with what's new and flashy. And these old books are classics, right? Pilgrim's Progress is such an amazing book. It's one of my favorites. If you're unfamiliar with Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory written by John Bunyan. It's actually an allegory of the Christian life, where a Christian goes on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, and he goes on this journey and meets all kinds of people along the way and struggles through so many things. He meets worldly wise men and faithful and beautiful He struggles with the slew of despond and Vanity Fair. Oh, it's such a good book. It's such an encouragement to believers as well. Well, I've been encouraged lately because we started reading it with my family. I started going through this story with my kids, and it's been a joy to see them get these truths in a different way. Well, providentially this week, we were reading Pilgrim's Progress, and we got to the place of Doubting Castle. Do you remember Doubting Castle? Doubting Castle is where Christian and his companion, Hopeful, get in trouble. They veer off the Lord's way. They seem to find a shortcut, they think, and they go through a field and they get lost. They get turned around. They can't find it back to the Lord's way and so it gets dark and they fall asleep and when they wake up, this giant takes them prisoner and throws them in his dungeon and they find out that this giant is giant despair and they have been locked in Doubting Castle. They struggle in Doubting Castle for three days. The giant taunts them, tells them they should commit suicide They would be better off dead. They're lost. They're hopeless. Their king isn't coming to the rescue. And by the third day, they're despairing even to death. They seem to have lost all hope. They're praying right before the dawn, and then Christian remembers something. And he says these words to his companion. What a fool I've been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this, when I could just as easily walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart, which is called promise." And I'm sure that it will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And Christian takes this key out of his pocket, this picture of the word that's been stored up in his heart, trusting in the promises of God and opens every door in Doubting Castle. And they're freed, they go back to the Lord's way. I wonder how many of us this morning can relate to this. I wonder how many of us have spent time in Doubting Castle, been burdened by great despair, I'm sure many of you can remember a time in your life where God felt distant, where God felt absent. God's presence wasn't clear and you weren't even sure if he was going to show up. He didn't seem to care for you. He didn't seem to be faithful to his word. He just seemed absent and you seem lost. You start to run out of resources. You start to feel helpless and you have nowhere to turn. Maybe some of you are even here like that this morning. And if you're not, you will be, especially if you wanna follow Jesus. Because Jesus promised that not only will we believe, but we would also suffer for his sake. And so the questions I want to wrestle with this morning are, how do we deal with despair? How do we deal with doubt? How do we deal with struggle? How do we deal with the fears and the difficulties in this world in a godly way? Because David wrestled with the same fears and difficulties in this passage. And through his lament, through his difficulty and his struggle, I believe we can learn how to wrestle with despair to the glory of God. And that's what we're going to study this morning. So let's get into this psalm. Let's start by looking at the superscript this week. And it's very simple. You might notice already. It just simply says, of David. Of David, which means this is David's psalm. It's a psalm about David. So we know it's written by David, the king of Israel. But the problem is we don't know when he wrote it. You notice that? Sometimes we have a little detail in the superscript that says it was written during this period in David's life. And there are scholars go all over the place trying to figure that out. There's not a whole lot of details in the psalm you might have noticed, so some people think, well, it was probably early on in David's life when he was on the run from Saul. Clearly, he was despairing then and and struggling, but it could also be when he was on run from Absalom later on in life, but the problem with David is he was in trouble more time than he wasn't. He was struggling and despairing most of his life, so bottom line, we don't really know, and I love that, because then we won't be tempted to say, well, you know what, that only applies to this circumstance. Because we experience despair in all kinds of ways, don't we? And this psalm from David can feed us in all kinds of situations. So, of course, we're looking at another lament here. This is an individual or a personal lament. Some might even call it a complaint. David's struggling with these fears and doubts, but he's taking them before the Lord, showing us how to lament well, how to despair even to the glory of God. Oh, I know we've said this before, but we need lament, don't we? Probably getting familiar with it. I don't know if you noticed, but half the psalms we've studied so far have been laments. But we live in a culture who doesn't know how to suffer well. In a church culture who doesn't know how to lament well. We run to hope so quickly, even falsely, before we're even over the lament. But God in his grace has given us these laments so that we learn how to be angry well. To be sad well. To even to work through despair to the glory of God. And Psalm 28 helps us do that this morning. So before we get into the psalm, though, I want to remind you, even though we don't know the historical context, the literary context is actually really important. I don't know if you know this, but the psalms were placed in an order specifically because they have themes and and ideas that are similar to each other. And it's been, I think, four years since we've studied Psalm 27. Jason preached that like four years ago. So let's look at Psalm 27 to see the kind of struggles David was having before we get into Psalm 28. Psalm 27, verse 12. Listen to what David is struggling with here. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So we see David struggling, wrestling, He's starting to lose hope, but he's encouraged to wait for the Lord. And then what do we find in Psalm 28? He's still in trouble, and he's still waiting. Only now, he's been waiting so long, he's starting to despair. And so what does David do in the middle of his waiting, in the middle of his despair? He begins to meditate on his life, his enemies, and his God. And he gives us three pictures in this psalm that I want to reflect on this morning. Three pictures that he uses to wrestle through his despair. And the first picture is in the first three verses. And that is the despair of God's covenant people, verses 1 through 3. Then second, the pride of the wicked. And then third, the most glorious part, the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ. I believe as we meditate on these pictures this morning, we too can learn how to despair in a way that can honor the Lord. To work through our despair, even as David did. So let's look first in verse 1 at the despair of God's covenant people. And you need to know, we're seeing this despair through the eyes of David. He is the covenant representative here, but his despair, his struggle is not unique to him. He struggles even on behalf of the nation. In a lot of ways. So we see that lens that it's David's struggle, but it's also the struggle of all the people of God. They despair in such a way. So let's look at his cry in verse one, his despairing cry. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Oh, don't you just love this? Right out of the gate, what does David do? To you, O Lord, I call, not to you, O advisors to you, O prophets, to you, O generals of my army or my soldiers, the ones that give me worldly strength, not even to you, O people of Israel, the people of God I call, not even to you, O Google. We laugh because it's true, right? I find more often than not these days, my instinct when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, isn't to call out to you, O Lord, but it's to go to Google. My water heater went out this week. i got to get on there and figure it out. Or i got to find an authority, somebody in this world that knows more than me, that can tell me this problem is really not that big a deal. We so quickly want to run to the wisdom of this world, don't we, in times of trouble, to the latest statistics or opinion polls or research, or to books from dead saints even or to gift assessment surveys, or personality inventories. We so often want to run to the wisdom of this world, but that's not where David goes, is it? He doesn't even cry out to you, oh, friends and family, the ones that love me, that have my best interest at mind. No, he cries out to the Lord. He knows where his help comes from. Notice also the names he uses to address God. He says, to you, Lord, all caps, what's that? That's Yahweh, right? That's this covenant name we've talked about. To the great I am. The great glorious God of the universe, but also the God of his fathers. The God that faithfully freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. The God that graciously reached out to Moses to establish a covenant to care for him and the people of Israel. To be their God and to care for them even when they were unfaithful. Even when they were in rebellion. So David cries out to the covenant-keeping God that has never let him down. And notice also, he says, to you, Yahweh, Lord, and my rock. Well, rock has been a big theme in the last few Psalms. All the way back into Psalm 18, David calls out, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I trust. Oh, this name for God highlights his strength, his faithfulness, his unshakable, dependable nature, That even when this world gets shaken up and rulers come and go, the Lord will stand firm forever? And this is David's foothold. This is his strength. This is his foundation, his fortress, his refuge. And he calls out to his covenant-keeping God and his refuge. Well, he must really be in trouble. Let's see what's going on. Look at his plea at the end of verse one. His despairing plea begins right in the middle. Be not deaf to me, Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Now we begin to see David's struggle, his fear and his despair. It's actually summed up in those last few words, going down to the pit. The pit here is actually the word for grave. It's death that David is afraid of. It's as if David is saying, look, Lord, if you don't show up, if you don't help me, I'm as good as dead. This is almost over. We're running out of time here. My life is at stake. Will you show up? Will you keep your covenant? And he continues in verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your most holy sanctuary, begging for mercy, crying out to God, lifting his hands. And what is that about? Well, this lifting of hands is often symbolized as a picture of prayer in Scripture. We have all kinds of pictures of prayer. Some people fall on their face. Some people bow to their knees and pray to God. Often people will raise their hands, stretch out their hands to God in prayer. We see Solomon doing it at the temple when he dedicates the temple to the glory of God. He prays with his hands outstretched. Paul says in 1 Timothy that I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting hands without anger or quarreling. So this is a picture of prayer, but it's much more than that. It's also a picture of desperation, isn't it? We know this. All these kids around the church, when they're in trouble, when they've run out of resources, what do they do? They reach up to mom and dad. I have no ability to meet my needs. I need you. They cry out with their hands outstretched. That's what David's doing here. He's extending these empty hands to God. But notice it doesn't say to God. What does it say? He's directing his open hands to the most holy sanctuary. What in the world is that? Well, that actually is one word in Hebrew. It's oracle, the place where God speaks and where God hears. And later on in the day of Solomon, that's the word used to describe the holy of holies. So this is David reaching out his hand to the holy of holies here, the place where God's presence rests. It's this symbol, this picture of I'm trying to reach into the very presence of God because you seem so absent, so distant from me right now. I want to be in your presence. I want to dwell in the place where I'm in communion with you. You hear my prayers and you care for me. Have you ever desired that? To be close to God, to feel comforted by him, to have your prayers heard? That's what David wants here. But there's much more than that. Because in the Holy of Holies was also the place of the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, that lid on the top laid in gold with the cherubim. We sang about it earlier. This mercy seat was the place where God's people would make atonement for their sin where one day a year the priest would come in with the blood of the animal being sacrificed for the sins of the people, and he would sprinkle on the top of this mercy seat this resting place of God and his glory to appease the wrath of God, to atone for the wrath of God so that God's people can be in communion with God. And so David is crying out here on the blood of the covenant, reaching out to God and saying, blood has been spilt there for me. We should be okay. We should be reconciled. Why are you not showing up? Are you not being faithful to your covenant? Have you abandoned your people? Blood has been shed. God, where are you? And so David is despairing, struggling. I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, I was just struck. I didn't expect that David would be the one struggling with the fear of death. I mean, why couldn't he be more like Paul, right? To to live his Christ, to die his gain. Paul didn't have any fear of death. Seems to be wanting death most of his life, but David was fearing death here. That's not usual for David. He was the one, even as a boy, who charged to Goliath to battle in a place that he had zero odds, right? Everything was stacked against him. He led God's people into battle. So David isn't the type of guy that fears death. So what's going on here? Why would he fear death like this? Well, maybe there's something else going on. Look at verse 3. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. What we have here is language of judgment, David's fear isn't just death, it's judgment against his sin. This is the same type of language we hear in Matthew 25 when Jesus returns and judges the sheep and the goats. Where Matthew says this about Jesus in Matthew 25. Don't turn there, let me read it. Before Jesus will be gathered all the nations, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for you for the devil and his angels. David's fear here is that he will be drug off with the wicked. He will be included with the wicked. Why would David fear judgment like that? I mean, this is the man after God's own heart, right? Right? We have psalms filled with him devoting his life to God. God used him for amazing things in this world. But David was a fallen man, wasn't he? We see that clearly in scriptures. The sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Later on in his life and all the drama with Absalom as a consequence even of his sin. David feared the judgment of God because he was guilty. He was a sinner. Look at the way he describes the sin of the wicked and even himself included in verse 3 Do not drag me off with the wicked. Okay, what do the wicked look like, David? With the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors. Well, there's evil in their hearts. Do you know that David describes evil in two ways here, doesn't he? There's kind of an internal and an external problem. The external problem is that they are workers of evil. They're liars. They sin on the outside, but they also have evil hearts. David's saying, my problem is external and internal. What theologians call original sin, the sin I've inherited from Adam, an actual sin. We often say that we're sinners by nature and by practice. And that's what David's saying here. I'm not just a good guy who's made mistakes. I'm not just a guy who's lost his way. I really have a good heart. You just have to give me more time or more training and more education, then my good heart will come out. No, David's saying I am a sinner through and through. I do evil things, but you have to know it's coming out of a heart that is more evil than anything I do. I am ruined from the inside out. And because of that, he knows he's guilty. And so he fears judgment. And so are we. We're guilty as well. We need to stop acting like we're not. How many of us don't even feel guilty right now? But you know that guilt is not primarily a feeling. Some people feel guilty even when they're not. But guilt is a legal declaration, it's a legal standing. We are guilty in God's court, his holy court, the only one that matters. We are all sinners. David himself said in Psalm 14, no one does good. And as if we're trying to bring up an exception and say, no, I know. So. No one does good. No, not one. David included. We are guilty. We need to acknowledge it, recognize it. But then the question becomes, what will you do with that guilt? Will you, like David, cry out to God for mercy? Will you acknowledge your guilt that you deserve the wrath of God? Will you acknowledge your desperate and helpless estate? Will you call out to God, stretching your hands out for mercy? Because that is the mark of God's covenant people. Not that they don't struggle with guilt, not that they're not guilty, but that their guilt, their despair, their burden leads them to the Lord, that their fear of judgment and their despair leads them to repentance. That's the mark of God's people. That's the despair of the godly. It's not that they're not broken. It's that in their brokenness, they go to their Lord. And that's what David is doing here. That's the despair of God's people. Now let's look at the pride of the wicked. The pride of the wicked in verse three at the end. We'll just start in the beginning of verse three. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Did you notice the sin that David picks to describe the wicked? It's not murder, It's not genocide, or adultery, or theft. It's not even the hundreds of other sins that I would think is way more severe. It's lying, it's hypocrisy. Saying, yep, that's it, right there, that describes the wicked. How is that a summary of the wicked? Well, what David's doing here, he's not trying to say, look how bad this sin is, that's how bad the wicked are. He's not trying to highlight the severity of their wickedness, he's trying to contrast their wickedness with the people of God. Because both the people of God and the wicked are guilty. They're both wicked. But the difference is the people of God admit their guilt. They acknowledge their guilt. But what do the wicked do? They hide it. They cover it up. They speak peace with their neighbor. They use this covenant word, right, shalom, this word peace. We're at peace. We're at peace with each other. We're at peace with God. But really, there's evil in their hearts. They're covering up their sin. And so David exposes their sin and then he calls out for judgment in verse four. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. This is such an interesting contrast here. When David prays for himself, recognizes his guilt, what does he pray for? Mercy. But then he prays for the wicked, exposes their guilt, and what does he pray for? Judgment. We think, well, Is that unchristian? I mean, Jesus is the one that said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. David, what are you doing? Have you lost it in your despair? Is your sin getting the best of you? Well, not so fast. We don't want to throw David under the bus here. We learned even a couple weeks ago, if you remember, Chad preached from Psalm 94, which recognized that God is a covenant-keeping God, a God of mercy and of grace, but also a God of vengeance. He's a God of justice and of mercy which makes sense that his people would be about both of those things too. They would pray for both of those. And please notice that David's not saying, give me mercy because I've earned it. Give them justice because they deserve it. He's saying, no, neither of us have earned it. We're both wicked. I'm gonna pray for mercy and justice. But the bottom line is that David is praying that God would be glorified through that mercy and justice. I know there's a lot of difficulties for us as Christians to figure out how do I pray like David here and when do I pray for mercy and justice? I encourage you to go back and listen to Chad's sermon, but that's not the point I want to draw here. David's primary concern, even in his despair, as he pleads for mercy, is that God's name would be vindicated, that God would be glorified through mercy and through justice. Look at the end of verse four when he says, render them their due reward, right? Give to them what they deserve, why? because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. So why do the wicked deserve the wrath of God? Well, it actually all comes down to their hands. Did you notice that imagery here, this picture here? When the work of God is revealed by his hands, God's covenant keeping with his people, God's grace, even common grace to everybody in this world, the people of God reach out empty hands. They lift up their hands, reaching to God, pleading for his mercy. But what do the wicked do? When God displays his goodness, the work of his hands, they trust in the work of their own hands. They use their own hands to create idols. And the idols we so often create are ourselves. It's not that they don't know. They don't recognize the work of God. They suppress it. They ignore it. As Romans says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They trusted in the work of their hands. And what's the result? Look at the end of verse 5. He, that's Yahweh, again, this covenant-keeping God will do what? will tear them down and build them up no more. This is a picture of ultimate judgment. A picture like we get in a lot of the prophets. In Isaiah 6, there's talk about God wiping out this entire city. Man, woman, and child. Killing off everything. There's no signs of life. Pronouncing judgment that this city will never be rebuilt again. That's this judgment he's talking about. That God will wipe out evil forever. Wipe out those who trust in the work of their hands. And the only resort that we have is to reach out our hands and plead for mercy, to take our fear and our despair and go to the only one that can help because we are guilty. Well, we've seen the despair of God's people and the pride of the wicked. I think we're probably ready for some hope. I'm sure you can see why David was despairing. Such a bleak picture when he looks out over his life. So how does his despair lift? How does his lament turn to hope? What unlocks the key to Doubting Castle for David? Well, it's actually the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ. And to see that most clearly, we have to jump to verse 8 first before we get to verse 6. So go down to verse 8 in the psalm and listen to what David says. The Lord, Yahweh, is the strength of his people. Notice it's not just David anymore. It's all of God's people. Yahweh is their strength. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. That word there by David is so interesting. The word anointed is actually the word Messiah in Hebrew. Certainly David could be talking about himself. He's anointed king by God. He rules over God's people in their place. But why not say, he's my refuge. He's my saving refuge as he has before. He decides to use the word Messiah here. He's the refuge. I believe what's happened here is that while David was lamenting, even in the midst of his lament, David started to get a picture of Christ of the Messiah, that God would keep his covenant with David through his Messiah. Now, we don't know where that it started exactly. Maybe it started all the way back in verse one when David called out to his rock. Maybe in God communicated with David or drew his mind to Exodus 17 where Moses struck the rock in the desert, this desolate place, and God's people were given living water. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus there that he would provide living water in a desolate place. He would give life where there's only death. Maybe it's in verse two, when he reaches out to the Holy of Holies, David's pleading on the blood of the covenant, and he starts to wonder, this isn't enough. I need a better sacrifice, because we're gonna have to do this again. I need more than just the blood of bulls and goats. I need greater communion than this could ever give me. I need a better sacrifice. I need something well beyond what we have, Lord. Maybe like the writer of the Hebrews, he was thinking like this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And maybe for David, when he reflected on the wicked, when he called out judgment on the wicked, he was reminded of Psalm 2, as Jason read this morning. God sets up his kingdom. The kingdoms of this world, the enemies of God, boast of their greatness. How they're gonna take out God, and what does God do? He laughs, because God will establish his king in Zion. And the only hope in Psalm 2 is this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Maybe David was reminded that God promised that someone from his family would sit on the throne of God's people forever. Through him would come the Messiah, the one to rule and reign over God's people, to set everything right. And by reflecting on the covenant faithfulness of God, his despair was lifted. He stopped looking at the world around him and looking inside and he looked to his Lord. And look at what he says in verse six then. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. It's only two words in Hebrew. It literally just says, blessed Yahweh, blessed covenant keeping God. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength And my shield, in him, my heart trusts, and I am helped. Oh, do you notice nothing changed for David? His enemies didn't disappear overnight. His struggles didn't go away. His guilt still remains. He's still under the righteous judgment of God. But in the middle of his despair, in the middle of his difficulty, he remembers the covenant faithfulness of God. And he says, blessed is Yahweh. He is my help. He is my comfort, my strength. And look at what he does at the end of verse seven. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. Isn't that beautiful? David's response to the covenant faithfulness of God in his Messiah is to praise God, not once the difficulty's over, but in the midst of trouble, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of despair, even when he doesn't feel like it. He lifts his voice in praise to honor the Lord, and so should we especially when we don't feel like it. I know that you hear music leaders say things like, you know what, if you don't believe every word in this song, just don't sing it. I get what they're trying to say. We long to worship God, not just in words, but out of a heart that's his, out of a heart that's honoring the Lord. But if I can be honest, if I waited to believe all the words that I sing, I would never sing. So often in my life, I sing not because I believe those truths, I sing in order to believe those truths worship praising God isn't just a response to God's grace for me it's a means of grace it's a way to battle sin and evil in this world and that's exactly what David's doing here he's praising God despite the despair in the middle of the despair and God is using it as a means of grace to encourage him to trust in the Messiah God does this so often he lifts us from the despair through praise and worship like Silas and Paul in jail in Acts. I believe it's Acts 16. They're thrown in prison, the last place that you would want to worship God. At midnight, one of them turns to the other and says, I bet the acoustics are good in here. And They start to sing. They praise God. And God uses that as a means to encourage them. The jail cells fling open and other people are encouraged as well. They don't run off. The Philippian jailer gets saved. And in the midst of the despair, God plants a church in Philippi. Worship is a response to grace, but it's also a means to grace. Oh, I know many of us, the last thing we do in the middle of despair, the last thing we want to do is sing. We need to sing, praise God in the middle of despair. And fortunately, God made us body and soul. We can actually control our body even when the feelings aren't there. We can lift our voices and praise God. We can open our lips and sing to him. We can open our Bibles and meditate on the truths of God, even when we don't feel like it. Even in the middle of the despair, we can look to Jesus. And that's what we need to do. We need to stop listening to ourselves and preaching to ourselves. Preaching the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ. As Robert McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. In the middle of the despair, that's where we need to go. And brothers and sisters, we have way more to praise God about than even David had. You realize that, right? David was looking to Jesus way from a distance. Into the future. He saw Jesus from types and shadows. He didn't know what it would look like exactly. But we get to look back and see the fulfillment of those types and shadows, to see the substance, the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus. And so when we read verses eight and nine, what David longs for, we rejoice that we can see it. David says, The Lord is the strength of his people, his saving refuge for his Messiah, his anointed. Oh, save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We get to see what that looks like. We get to rejoice because Christ didn't come just to help the despairing. He came in the place of the despairing. He came to be carried off to the pit, to be carried off with the wicked, for the guilty like you and me. He came to live the life that we failed to live, to go to the cross, pay for sin, face the wrath of God that David fears and that we fear. And raising from the dead conquered sin and death forever so that we might have newness of life. So that he could be our refuge and our strength. Well, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as your refuge, you need to know that the day is coming where you will be held accountable for what you did with the works of your hands and how you have responded to the work of God's hands. I pray that you would take refuge in the Son take refuge in the only strength you have. You would reach out and plead to God for mercy before that terrible day, because that is our only hope, because God will be glorified in justice and also in grace. For those of us that have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the covenant faithfulness of your God. Rejoice that your despair has been turned to gladness. And even this lament can be read totally different for believers. We might read it something like this. The Lord Jesus is our strength and our shield. For he has heard the voice of our pleas for mercy. He is the rock of ages who was cleft, broken for me. He was drug off down to the pit, off with the wicked for my sake. He received our due reward for the work of our hands on the cross. In Jesus, our heart trusts. We plead for the mercy On the blood of Christ, we lift empty hands to cling only to the cross. And with our song, we give thanks to him. The Lord Jesus is the strength of his people. Christ is our saving refuge. Oh, good shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep, save us and bless your heritage. Be our shepherd and carry us forever. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to know that we have a hope that is unfading, that cannot be shaken. It depends on you and your covenant faithfulness alone. Father, I pray for those that are in the middle of despair and difficulty, struggle with the burdens of sin in the flesh in this world. Lord, we know that that relief can only come if you grant it. Pray, God, that you'd be merciful to your people. You would encourage your people to trust in your son even when times are dark. Despair is strong. And may we trust in the promises of Christ in his finished work to find relief from the despair and hope in him. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.